It's Mark 9, beginning at verse 38. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is better to you, for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Heavy words, let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this portion of your word now, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. We pray that we would be honest with you about those areas in our lives that are unpleasant and frankly sinful and wrong. And we pray that we would look to you alone for resolution of those problems. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Love is blind and may not see. Now you might be surprised, my parents are here today, that I know something about poetry. Geoffrey Chaucer, Chaucer, I keep getting told that I'm saying his name wrong and I don't know which is the right way to say it now. Chaucer, Chaucer, yeah, other times people correct you and you forget which is the right way. Anyway, he wrote this way back when. Now, we've used the, I've used the modernised English version of this. It's a very, very old saying. However, when I said that, you might have thought that this belonged to William Shakespeare. See, Chaucer used it in The Merchant's Tale, but William Shakespeare nicked it and he had it in The Merchant of Venice. He made it very, very popular. It's a saying that we've heard many, many times, I'm sure. However, this idea and the origins of this saying seem to go back even further than the 1500s to the so-called Roman god of love, Cupid. You might have seen that little baby with wings with a bow and arrow. Uh, in the most original depictions of this Cupid, Cupid actually wears a blindfold. Now, to me, that raises a whole heap of questions as to why you would give a baby, even one with wings, a bow and arrow. doesn't make sense. But the idea is that it's just shooting. It's just shooting in the dark and see what gets hit. It doesn't seem particularly smart, but this is the idea. And it captures the idea that when you love someone or something, perhaps even ourselves, we can be very partial to that thing, person, or whatever it might be, to the point where we become blind to the mistakes or flaws that we, that person, or that object has. I don't normally talk about poetry, so why am I talking about this at all? 
Well, I think we see in Mark's gospel here today a few situations where this idea plays out that love is blind and may not see. When we love ourselves, we sometimes become blind to our faults. Christ is calling us to an honesty that exceeds this excuse we often come up with. Well, I love that person, so I just didn't see their faults. You might see on the news, if uh, it's those terrible circumstances where somebody's gone on a rampage and hurt a whole heap of people. But they were a lovely boy growing up. They were a lovely girl. The, the love can cover over the faults of a person and we sometimes don't deal with them properly. Now, I think we see this playing out in a few things today in Mark's Gospel. It starts off with a complaint from John about people who are, who are doing things in Jesus' name. Jesus, why let them do that? Us here, we're your disciples, we're following you, we're a tight-knit really loved group we're a great bunch of people he's not following us we've stopped him don't worry we've dealt with it there's a love of self which gets in the way of jesus name and then jesus confronts us on sins that we are often inclined to turn a blind eye to because we sometimes and might be more than sometimes love ourselves more than god which makes us blind to the severity and the significance of sin there is a chunk for us to get through today So let's go to where we started our reading in verse 38. John answered Jesus. Now this follows on immediately from where we were at last week. Uh, The discussion that Jesus had with his disciples, they had been talking on the road about who the greatest was. And Jesus said, well, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you have to put yourself last. And he grabbed a child and he said, whoever welcomes one of these in my name receives me. It's a wonderful thing. But we also touched on the fact that children weren't the most liked or tolerated members of society at the time. So to welcome even the most unlovable people, put the people considered last in society above yourselves. In response to that, John comes out with what he does in verse 38. And from what we see from John's response in verse 38, there's a lesson of humility that Christ has given last week that hasn't sunk in yet. You can almost imagine as Jesus was telling them about even receiving children in his name and the last being first, there were nods of contemplation around the room as Jesus said that. But then as John speaks and opens his mouth, we realise that the lesson is missed. Jesus, there's a dude out there who doesn't follow us but he still has the guts to cast out demons in your name. Now, a few things there. This guy seems to actually be casting out demons in Jesus' name. The last time we saw the disciples try and cast out a demon, they'd been unsuccessful in Mark's gospel. But this guy over there, yes, he's being successful. He's casting out demons in your name. But Jesus, he doesn't follow us. But you know what? We've sorted out the situation. We've forbade him from doing it anymore. It's all sorted out. Now, how this actually relates to what Jesus has just told them about the first being last, I'm not sure. But this is where their hearts are at. Perhaps it's just an attempt to change the topic of discussion. Looking at what John says here, that there's not a whole heap of good stuff here. But one positive thing is that there is an unnamed man, an unnamed man who has heard of the power of Jesus' name 
and is casting out demons faithfully in Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 19, which we read before in verses 11 to 20, we see the sons of Sceva. They tried to exorcise a demon and they were itinerant exorcists. They went around travelling, seemingly getting money for casting out demons. It was a business for them. They didn't trust in Jesus' name. Getting tr- and they, they tried to cast out a demon and got absolutely trounced by a demon. If this fella, we don't know his name, we know nothing about him, is actually casting out demons in Jesus' name, there's somebody who knows the power of Christ's name and is beginning to have faith in Christ. We see a positive thing there about the nature and the impact of Jesus' ministry. But that's about the only positives we can draw out of what John says. This man doesn't follow us. Not Jesus, this man doesn't follow you. Jesus, this man, he doesn't follow us. Twice we see in what John says here, John being upset because a man didn't follow us. He didn't follow us, the 12 apostles, so we gave him a cease and desist order. We told him to stop. We've put an end to it. The problem is sorted out. Can you please give us a pat on the back? What a wonderful job we did. We told someone to stop doing something good in your name, Jesus. This isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. Now, we need to be clear. I touched on the point of this guy being faithful in casting out Jesus. There was a faithfulness to Jesus' name that's implied in Mark's gospel. Paul in Philippians 2, he says that we should rejoice when Christ is, is, is proclaimed, even by those who don't actually love Christ. There's a sense of rejoicing when the good name of Jesus Christ is heard. But that said, what Jesus goes on to talk about here is that we shouldn't rejoice that people would abuse Jesus' name. We shouldn't rejoice or encourage people using Jesus' name for selfish ends. There is a difference there. It's a good thing for people to hear about Jesus And we should rejoice when people hear about Jesus, but to rejoice in people abusing Jesus' name, leading people astray, that's not what we rejoice in. So going back to where we are. Jesus has something to say about this. Verse 39. John, thinking he has done a good thing by telling Jesus they have forbade this guy from preaching in his name, Jesus says, do not forbid him. And he goes on to list a whole heap of reasons why. Anyone who works a miracle in my name can, can soon speak, uh, can, can, can't speak evil of Jesus afterwards. Those who are not against God are for God. And he goes on to talk about the hospitality between believers in verse 41. Again, there's a genuineness of faith that needs to be present there. If you haven't trusted God alone for salvation for sin, then you're against him. But if anyone is being faithful to me, Jesus says, and loves me, you might not hang out very often. You might not hang out at all. You might not see this person in your local synagogue at the time or for us on a Sunday morning gathering. There's a lesson for us here as we consider and think about and pray for other churches. It's very easy at times to become insular 
and think that we are part of the one true church. In fact, I've heard people say that. I've heard people in many places say things that make it sound as if they are part of the only true church. That we alone have the truth. And when challenged on that, back away to a point where they imply, rather than say, that they're part of a one true church. It might surprise us, the places and people who God has called to be his own. Just because they don't follow us, just because they don't meet here with us on a Sunday morning, does not mean that they are any less Christ. This is a lesson the disciples were learning. This guy might not be breaking bread with you every day, but he is one of mine. Jesus speaks of the wonderful fellowship that goes on between believers in verse 41, sharing water, being hospitable, being loving to one another. Anyone who greets us in the name of Christ, again, there's a genuineness of faith there, will not lose their eternal reward, which is salvation. So that like the disciples, we are perhaps being confronted on on spiritual snobbiness and spiritual superiority right now this morning. Perhaps we're being confronted with that in reading these things. There's a lesson of humility there. The love for what John had with those 12 and the other disciples who they were with very often made him blind to the pride that was in his heart of thinking that they were the only followers of Christ and everybody else should be denied use and access to Christ's name. Love seemingly had made John blind, but love of Christ, primarily love of that comfortable area. And from there we dive into one of the most significant lessons in Scripture on the cost of sin other than the cross itself. As we head into verse 42 through to 48. We see a severity of sin which we cannot ignore. Now the scene here, verse 42, Jesus says, well, whoever causes one of these little ones, what we have here is a, it's a continuation of what we had last week. The, the little boy who Jesus brought to himself last week is presumably still right there with Jesus before the disciples as Jesus is teaching them. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were flung into the sea. Now, we might be thinking right now, wow, that escalated very, very quickly. That escalated very quickly. This is turning into a no-holds-barred conversation. It's getting really, really intense. Jesus hit the accelerator, but he is needed to hit the accelerator. The millstones at the time weighed anywhere up to about 650 kilograms. It's better for one of those to be tied around your neck and be flung into the sea if you cause even one of these people in society who you don't think much of to stumble when it comes to faith in me. You cannot escape the drowning and the horrible death that would follow that. There is no real hope of getting it off, but that scrabbling for life to take the next breath is present, but that is better than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. I shared in the prayer meeting this morning, I wasn't thinking about this, but God sometimes brings these things up in incredible times. I received a text message, I did share this in prayer meeting this morning, 
of a lady who is befriending uh, young adults and children on Facebook at the moment in many churches around the north side of Brisbane. She is part of a, the, a cult coming out of Korea. It's an insidious cult that claims to be a cult in the name of Jesus Christ, like claims to be a church of Jesus. They're not. This girl is going around North Brisbane encouraging people to be led away from Christ. This is not something that Jesus is saying just happens back then. This is something that happens today. How are we teaching our children? When we, when we teach our children at home, whether it's grandkids, nieces, nephews, children of our own, how are we teaching them? Are we faithfully teaching them about Christ? Because Jesus says here, if we're doing it in a way that leads them away from God, it is better to have a millstone hung around our neck and have us thrown into the sea. That is a better alternative. There are real risks for the disciples and us today. The disciples have been learning from Jesus. They've been learning. Close to three years they've been with Jesus. They've been learning. They've been knowing more. They've been telling people things. For myself at Bible college, at the end of each semester, we were given a review form. And the question, one of the questions there was, how much have you learned? It wasn't uncommon for students to write enough to be dangerous. Enough to be dangerous. If we don't have a proper grasp of godly things and even accidentally lead someone, even at this time a child who is not well looked after as, as a member of society, for us today it might be the elderly person who is alone in an aged care facility, desperate for company, and we come in and take advantage of that person. We lead them away from God. The consequences are... To say severe doesn't even do justice to what it is, but so severe that to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea is better. That is not a good way to go. It's a graphic image, but that is better than the spiritual consequences of leading someone away from the life that we have in Christ. And then we get an ongoing series of graphic but very honest and true assessments from Jesus about our tendency to sin if your hand causes you to sin, stealing, violence, whatever it might be, it's better to cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, we don't know what that looked like, perhaps going to brothels, going to gambling dens. It's better for you to cut that off because that is better for your soul to lose that foot than be able to go to those places where you continue to sin. If your eye causes you to sin, Continually looking at people lustfully. Pornography, various forms of adultery and covetousness that can express in our heart and come out through how we look at things around us. If that's what you struggle with, it's better for you to pluck your eye out. That is better for your soul. If we're feeling overwhelmed by this i think we should be thankful because jesus could have gone on and listed every single part of our anatomy here it's severe language it's serious language and the reason jesus is doing this is because sin is significant The 
the stakes here are higher than any other stakes we have. It's eternal life. And it's eternal glory with God. We're eternally being in a place where Jesus quotes three times here from Isaiah 66 verse 24. The last verse of Isaiah, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's talking about hell. Now we need to be clear, this is, this is not some sort of encouragement to head down the path of self-flagellation as if beating our back as we see dramatising TV shows is what's going to get us into heaven. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. But over and over and over again through Mark's Gospel, we have seen Christ, his words and his example that should lead us to an astounding measure of humility. Humility that if we try to have some of it by God's grace and he grants that to us, hopefully allows us to not get all riled up and defensive when we hear these words of Jesus. We might look at this and think, well, it's not that bad a sin that I've committed. It's not that bad. I'm okay. I don't need to change. My issues aren't that big. It's all good. This is an overreaction. If that is how we're responding to what Jesus is saying here, that's a, a sign that we, have, we are loving ourselves and loving our sin to the point we're blind to them and their consequences. Jesus uses this blunt language here because he's making a point that we desperately need to hear and not just once. It's interesting to note that Christ actually talks more about hell than heaven in his ministry here on earth. We don't like that today. But Christ actually talks more often about hell than heaven. The consequences for sin are very real. Sin is ugly. Sin must be dealt with. If the sins that are present in each of our lives, I'm not standing here assumed to be any better than anyone else. If the sins and our lives are not dealt with and dealt with properly, then the reality for us is an eternity in hell. Again, three times Jesus quotes Isaiah 66 verse 24 to emphasize the eternal judgment of God for sin, a place where the worm does not die. That's not a pleasant thing to be around. This isn't the good for the garden type of worm. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place where there is no relief and only the negative consequences for sin. May we look at our lives at this point in time and go, but it makes me feel good. That sin makes me feel good. It makes me feel alive. I would be empty if I didn't have that. It's too hard to stop. The consequences of what it means to me right now to stop, whether it be stealing, if that's how financial means are met, dishonesty to get promotions so that we can get further ahead in the mortgage or whatever it is. Maybe they, I look at that and I can't afford to stop doing it. The reverse question is, can you afford to keep doing it? Knowing the consequences and eternity in hell, can you continue in unrepentant sin. It feels good to do these things now, we might say, but do you think it's going to feel good in hell if we don't repent? It's not. 
sin is an enormous issue. Sin is what broke mankind's relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. Sin expresses itself in many ways. As I said, Jesus could have listed every single part of our anatomy to make this point here. Sin can express itself through physical means. It can express itself in an attitude. I think the attitude John has just expressed here is one of pride. And the, 11, uh, the other 11 who basically told this other guy who wasn't following them to shut up, it seems to come from pride. It can, be, it can come through in our hands and our feet and our eyes. It can come through in any part of us. Sin expresses itself in many ways. In our attitude. And maybe if it's not expressed, maybe we live what looks like moral lives and we just have problems with how we think about the people around us and we go, that's okay, no one sees that. But how many times has Jesus shown us in this gospel that he knows the hearts of the people around him? God knows our thoughts. God knows our attitudes. And because we are blind, this isn't a message given to condemn us and to beat us down. It is a message of condemnation for those who don't repent of sin. But this has been given because Christ loves us, because he needs us to understand and to move past those blinding uh, mirrors, the blinkers we have on our lives, to see that sin must be dealt with. Uh, so, so what do we do at this point? Well, at this point, John and the others, they should have probably taken on a little bit of humility. As I said last week, uh, the discussion of who's the greatest, it's going to come up again in chapter 10. It can take a little while for that to take effect. So we should be wondering, how is sin dealt with? Jesus uses graphic language to get us to understand the severity of it, but... Even if we don't have hands, the temptation that comes from our hearts to sin is still there to steal sometimes, isn't it? It doesn't really deal with it. Not in the fullness. Jesus is talking about the significance of sin and pointing us towards a, a permanent solution to it. We have sung in a few of our songs today and we've seen over and over again Isaiah, Mark referencing Isaiah through this gospel. And Jesus references Isaiah in his words too because Jesus is the suffering servant. There is a price for sin, and that price is life. The cost of sin is death. This isn't a picture of hopelessness here. It's why, this is a lesson that should drive us to great humility, to not assume better of ourselves than we think we are, to honestly assess whether our love of ourselves and love of sin is making us blind to it in our lives. And we should turn to God and seek his help to resolve those things. As we turn to God, Christ is the suffering servant. He is the one who can pay the price for sin. For the disciples, they're heading to the cross with Jesus. They're heading there. Their promises of Christ's death and resurrection have been made. For us, we look back and we don't see this as something that's ahead in the future. We see this as something finished. It's a completed Thing. This is why when Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The price was paid. The consequences were taken, not by us, but by Christ.
if we try to deal with our sin on our own, then this, what Jesus just said, it leaves us hopeless. Because we can't deal with our hearts properly. Deuteronomy and Leviticus speak quite often of this, that only God can deal with our hearts. But if we love God, when we trust Christ alone for salvation, this leaves us hopeful. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. There's probably many, many, many areas in our lives. I know there's many areas in my life that still need to be worked on. And I pray that God will grow me and shape me as I work on those things every day. That should be each one of our prayer. But in our love for God, we should be asking, how is our attitude? How is our attitude to other Christians? Again, we're not talking people who abuse the name of Christ. How is our attitude towards other Christians who genuinely love God, who genuinely desire to worship Him in spirit and truth, who genuinely desire to see the church strengthened among believers and to see others brought into the kingdom? Do we have an attitude of superiority to them because they're not here with us on a Sunday morning? It's a serious question we need to ask. And does our love of ourselves make us think more of ourselves than we should, causing us to turn a blind eye to our sins? Jesus says, don't do these things. Now, how do we respond to these words? Ultimately, ultimately, we can give you guidance and encouragement and talk these things through with you. This is a matter between each one of us and our Heavenly Father. But be thankful that Christ has enough compassion to show us the severity of sins and to deal with our sin for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word this morning. This is a heavy and serious thing. It's a hard lesson for us to take in. Yet we pray, Lord God, that you would do the work in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. We pray that you would continue to shape us, make us more and more like the image of Jesus Christ, our perfect risen Lord and Saviour. And Lord God, as we contemplate these things, we pray that we wouldn't just contemplate them in a way which doesn't lead to any action or service to you, but may these things shape the way we live our lives for you. May our knowledge of you be evident in our day-to-day lives. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.